Good morning. Good morning, everybody. It is good to see all of your beautiful faces. <laughs> all a little bit chubbier since I last saw you. <laughs> here, here. <laughs> no, I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving feast over the last few days. Uh, I love Thanksgiving because I have great leftovers for days on end, and I enjoy them. Um, but it's good to see all of you. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Justin. I'm the pastor here. And uh, we are about to jump into our sermon series on the book of Hebrews. Uh, so today we're finishing up chapter 6 in the book of Hebrews. And that was just such a powerful worship set um, because it has so much to do with what we're talking about today, the promises of God. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20, and we're going to read it a little later. But today, last, last week we spoke uh, about the, the topic was a great peril. And this week, the topic is a great promise, uh, because the preacher, before he jumps into kind of the second part of Hebrews, there's this interlude that he gives us uh, about a peril and a promise where he is truly trying to engage the congregation that he is preaching to through this text, saying you must not walk away from your confession of your faith. God's promises are great, but the peril last week we talked about of walking away is too great for you to do that. And this week we learn about why. What what is the reason why we should not walk away? Why should Christians give up their life for the faith? Why is it that we should give up our lives and everything that we have? Why is it that we should consider our possessions, our righteousness, everything as filthy rags as nothing before God? Why is it that we should Walk away, even if it means walking away from our biological family. Why should Christians do that? And this week, we learn about why. Why we should do that. Because of who God is. Now, I want you to imagine with me, before we get too far in. Imagine, this is, I know many of you have probably imagined this. Some of you not. God bless you. Uh, but you can close your eyes if you want. I, want. I want you to have a rich imagination around this. Imagine you're praying one day and God says, you are going to be rich beyond your wildest imagination. Imagine that. Some of you, I'm getting more amens now than I ever have before. <laughs> then God puts a million dollars in front of you. You can keep imagining this with me. As they say, cold, hard cash. In finance class, they used to say, cash is king. God puts a million dollars of cash in front of you. And then from that million dollars, you're thinking, this million dollars, I'm going to invest it. I'm going to open up this business. I'm going to do this. And this million dollars is going to make a lot of babies. It's going to have a lot of million-dollar babies. And we're going to see millions of dollars come from this. And as you're imagining all the great things that you're going to do with this million dollars to make it grow, what happens? God says, okay, I want you to take that million dollars and I want you to give it away. Mm. You guys aren't liking this imagination anymore. Right? And then he says, give it away, but you have no prospects to get any more money. You have no prospects to get another million dollars. He just says, give it away. What do you do? You can, if you're closing your eyes, you can open them with me. 
What do you do at this point? I think there are three options before you of what you can do. You can say no. Right? I'm sure there would be some no's here. It's all right. Pray for repentance at the end of the service. <laughs> say no, God. Right? Worldly, conventional wisdom says that in, uh, in order for you to keep your promise of me being rich beyond my wildest dreams... That means I need this million dollars to invest it, to start a business, to do whatever I need to do in order to make more of that money. So I'm not going to give it away. That doesn't make sense. I'm going to help you fulfill your promise. And I'm going to use this money wisely in a way that makes sense. Second option, you can say, okay, God, I'm going to give it away, but you're mean. And I no longer believe you. I no longer believe what you tell me. I'm gonna, Sure, I'm going to give it away, but I'm giving you the silent treatment. We're not talking anymore. We're not friends. You're getting off of speed dial. Who remembers speed dial? You know, or, or the MySpace top eight. God is getting off that top eight. We are, I am no longer going to call you friend because you're mean and I'm mad at you. So fine, I'm going to give away this million dollars but I will be bitter for every dollar that I give away. And that will last me for every day. I will be bitter for every dollar until the day I die. So I'll obey you, but I won't do it out of joy. And it will be the last time I obey you because I will no longer believe you. Or the third option is to say, okay, God, yes, I'm going to give away the million. But I believe that you are still going to fulfill your promises. That is, those are what I think are the three options before us. And if we're real with ourselves, I think a lot of us in our natural state would land in point A or point B, but not really in the third place. What's interesting is today's text, there's a similar story of a promise that God gives to somebody. And then God tells that person to give away the fulfillment of that promise, and that man is Abraham. Abraham, the father of the faith, as he's called, he's the patriarch. He essentially, when all walked away from God, the earth was full of people and everybody had walked away. Uh, enter into the scene, Abraham, where God says, you know what? You are the one righteous person, and through you, I'm going to keep a remnant of people. I'm going to make myself a people that will still follow me when all the other people across all the earth have turned their backs on me. Right before, when God created the earth, all of the people knew about God and were called to follow him, but they all eventually turned away until there was only one person, one man, Abraham, left. And so God tells Abraham, who at this point, his name is Abram, he says, Abraham, Abram, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And he takes Abraham outside and he tells him to look at the stars. And he says, look at all of the stars. Now, Abraham didn't live in New York City, so he can actually see all the stars. If you've ever gone camping and you looked in the sky long enough and your eyeballs begin to adjust, you begin to realize there are a lot of stars that you can see. The light that has taken, I don't know how many billions of light years to come. And Abraham looks at the sky and he sees all of the stars. And God says, all of those stars, you cannot count them. That's how many children I'm going to give you. And he says, look at all the sand 
on the sea, all of the sand, you cannot count it. That is how many children I am going to give you. Except there is one problem with this. Abraham had no kids. And so Abraham takes this promise of God and he gets old with it. And at 100 years old, I don't think we have anybody here that is 100. But at 100 years old, Abraham has his first child, Isaac. Now, if you know anything about the human body, you realize this is a miracle, especially considering that his wife was in her 90s. So Abraham was not planning on having another child, right? This was his one and only true child, the child of the promise, as Paul calls him, Isaac. So as Isaac is getting older, God speaks to Abraham again. He says, Abraham, I want you to take Isaac, and I want you to take him to this mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. What does that mean? That means God asked him to essentially kill his only son as a sacrifice to him. Now, Abraham had this one prospect. Back then, children were the inheritance. They were how you showed you were prosperous. Right? And God told Abraham he was going to be the most prosperous of all because he was going to have kids that nobody could number. Yet here he got was this one child, and now God told him to sacrifice the one child that he got. Abraham had the same options we would have had before us if God had given us that million dollars. What does Abraham do? Abraham says, yes, Lord. He takes Isaac to the place of sacrifice. He builds the altar. He makes Isaac help him. And right before he is about to sacrifice Isaac, what does God do? He says, Abraham, stop. You have passed the test. You were obedient to me. And so now because of this, God says something that we're going to read in Genesis chapter 22, verse 15 to 18. It says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself, God saying this, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because of you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And your, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Because of Abraham's obedience, God makes an oath from his promise. And he says three things to Abraham. He reaffirms, you're going to have more offspring than you can ever count. Your offspring are going to conquer their enemies. And everyone on earth will be blessed through your children. Everyone on earth will be blessed. And since no... God has nobody to swear by, because when you swear by something, you swear by something greater than yourself. 
God says, I swear by myself. I swear on myself that this is going to happen. That by my own words, not swearing on anything else, but by my word, that this is going to happen. Now, if you read further in the story, you realize that the fulfillment of these promises come true. Right? Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob gets renamed to Israel. Israel has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel who go to live in Egypt, one of the most powerful empires of the day. They become so numerous that Egypt gets scared of them, enslaves them. God brings them out of slavery, and then they conquer the enemies of the promised land through Joshua. So knowing this story is an important backdrop for today in Hebrews chapter 6. Because this is the story that the preacher in Hebrews uses as an understanding of how we need to understand the promise of God. That when God tells Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, when he says that you are going to have more offspring that then you should count, yet Abraham here only has one child, and then God asks him to sacrifice that child. When we look at our natural circumstances and we look at God, you know, one of my favorite parts of our Proverbs sermon series was the difference between godly wisdom and earthly or worldly wisdom, and how godly wisdom makes no sense sometimes when it's compared to earthly wisdom. For instance, Abraham obeying God to sacrifice his only son when he was supposed to be the father of many nations. So the writer of Hebrews says, God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. And I want you to remember that story that we just read of what God told Abraham once Abraham went to sacrifice his son and then God stopped him and then made him this promise. And we see the fulfillment of that promise through the life of the Israelites in the Old Testament and then fully fulfilled through Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, you could read along with me to verse 20. We're going to read. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear... He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order 
of Melchizedek. God makes an oath with himself. What I love about when God makes an oath with himself, what that, what that means, that the promise he made to Abraham was no longer dependent on Abraham after that moment. The promise he made was dependent on himself. It was not dependent on anything else. See, God's promises are irrevocable simply because he swears them by himself. See, if God were to enter into a covenant with me, then the covenant would depend on me and on him. That is a covenant that can be broken. Because if the covenant depends on me as an imperfect person who is a liar, has lied many times, will probably lie in the future, then what will happen? There is room for that covenant to be broken, and God knows this. And so when God swears something, when he decides something with Abraham, he swears it by himself, saying that this oath will now depend solely upon myself. Abraham, it will not depend on you. Justin, it will not depend on you. Jess, it will not depend on you. It will depend fully on me as God. There is no known unknown variable in the promise of God. There is only one variable, and that is God. And what we know about God should give us hope. God's character is the hope that Christians should live in. See, God does not lie. Character, right, if, if, if you look at somebody and you say their character is bad, what are you saying about that person? You're, you are saying that they are untrustworthy. You're saying that they lie, that they hide things, that they, they don't exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, that there is something wrong. You don't go into a business deal with somebody that has bad character because you don't know all the different ways that they're going to screw you over in that deal. How many ways that they're going to break you. You always have to look over your shoulder. Are they going to actually do what they said they were going to do? And so the preacher wants to remind the church that our hope is not some ethereal thing in the future that Maybe we'll obtain. There's not a dependency. The, the hope that is talking about the anchor is a sure fire thing in the future that is coming. Why? Because it is dependent on the character of God. And so when we have a promise that is dependable on the character, which is a hope, something to come in the future, it becomes an anchor to our soul. Why? Because it is firm foundation. It is going to happen. It's something that we can count on, that God does not lie. 
That when God says he is going to do something, guess what? He is going to do it. It doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on the world order. It doesn't depend on what government wants to do. It doesn't depend on what your boss or your mom or your sister or your brother or your friends are saying or doing. When God says he is going to do something, God does it. God doesn't look down on earth and, as we said last week, see an election and go, oh, me, my. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know if I can fulfill what I said I was going to do now. Because look at what they did. Look at who they elected this time. Look at what they, look at what this person said this time. I don't know if I can do it anymore. Why? Because that would mean that we are a dependent variable on the promises of God. God's character gives us hope because he was faithful to do all that he said he would do. Abraham was obedient and patient. He was too old. He had no other kids. And this made no sense. But because of God's character, he followed what God called him to do anyway. Because of God's character. See, you know, God in Scripture hates child sacrifice. It becomes codified in law later on through Moses. Abraham knows the character of God. Abraham knows who God is. He knows what God said he was going to do. So Abraham becomes obedient. Do you understand? That our hope, you know, so often we lose hope. And we lose hope so often because we look at God like we look at humans. Because if God said, look at the birds of the air, look how I feed them and I clothe them, look how beautiful the lilies are, and I take care of them, how much more will I take care of you? If God said that, and then I am struggling, and I think, man, what am I going to do for food, for sustenance, and for shelter? The only reason why I will lose hope in a situation like that is because I think about God in human terms. I think, man, God's not going to fulfill his promise. I don't know, is God getting cold feet? Has God changed his mind? I love when people tell me God changed his mind. Oh, Justin, God told me to do this. Okay. Two weeks later, what happened? Oh, I don't really feel like God's calling me to do that anymore. Oh, okay. We think of God so often in human terms. And we craft a God of our own image that relates to us and how we want. I got excited about something, so God told me he wanted me to do it. 
I got lazy like I usually do, so God doesn't want me to do it anymore. God's not speaking to you, brother. That when we come across a hard time, we think of God about how our friends acted towards us or our parents at one time or how our boss did us dirty this time or our employee went behind our back, our peer, our coworker. And we begin to relate God to human terms or how I used to deal with people. I think that's how God deals with people. And so the promises of God no longer are surefire, are no longer an anchor of hope in our life because we start to think that God is fickle like we are fickle. That maybe God doesn't care about me. Maybe God doesn't want to sustain me. Maybe God doesn't think about me, isn't in this situation. Maybe God's ear is closed. Maybe his eyes are shut to what I am going through. And what that comes from is a lifetime of being betrayed by self and by others. And fashioning God's character in this. And so the scripture is reminding us God is not a man that he should lie. And so when you start to begin to believe that, man, God's not going to come through. God, God's. I, I can't obey, I can't be patient because God's not doing it the way I want him to do it, how fast I want him to do it, in the terms that I want him to do it in. And you start thinking like, I've had people leave me before, or I betrayed this person, and, and I think God's going to act like that to me now. Catch yourself and realize, no, God is not like me. God is not like that mother and that father that abandoned me. God is not like that coworker that gossiped about me. God is not like that friend who destroyed me. When God says that there is a reward greater than anything we can have on earth that is eternal, that awaits for us, and that he cares for his children and that his promise is sure, not because of us, of people, but because of him. That gives us hope. Hope that is not an if. See, when we, a lot of times when we think of hope, we think of, I, I, I hope I get that Christmas gift, or I hope I get that job. It's a 50-50 shot, but that is not the hope of Scripture. The hope of God, the hope of Jesus Christ is an anchor, meaning that this is sure, that it is steady, that it is promised, it is secure. That it is a hope that we can depend on. Not a hope that will run, not a hope that is a flip of a coin, not a hope that may be there one day and gone the next, but it is a hope that is dependent on the character of God who he does not lie. And he has said that he will make a way. For us, God's promise is firm. And Christ has already achieved it. 
See, this is what the preacher is trying to get across. If God's promise depends on himself and in God's character, it is impossible to lie. And if Jesus has already walked into that promise, wait, making a way for us, where does that leave us today with no doubt that with patience and endurance, the promise awaits? See, we have, in verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, what, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. wants this church to understand that. Trials are going to come. Tests will come. But do not forget who God is. Don't forget that we saw Jesus come. We saw him die. We saw him raise from the dead. We saw him ascend into heaven. He went into the holy of holies as a forerunner. The first of many. The forerunner sometimes was described as the person in the race who broke ahead of everybody else and achieved first what everybody else was going to achieve. Jesus was the first who went into the Holy of Holies and the veil tore in two. So that as it said in Hebrews chapter 4, that we could boldly go before the throne of grace. The promise of the good news and God's faithfulness to fulfill it should be all that we need to sustain us in our life. God said that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. Guess what? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. God said that in Isaiah that he was sending the Messiah to loose the captive, to be good news to the poor. That he is here doing that work through Jesus. How often I need to remind myself that God is not like me. I'm telling you, there's many times where I get mad. And I will choose option one or option two. And I'll say, God, I'm going to do what you told me to do, but I'm going to be mad at you about it. I'm going to hate you for bringing me to this place. I'm not going to open my word. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to talk to you because I can't believe you would do this to me. 
Just be real. See, this is why I'm grateful that God is not a human. Because I know the tendency of my heart to change to the left and to the right constantly. When God is saying, look at Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, for I will give you rest. And God is just waiting for me to come to that moment of saying, God, I'm sorry, I did it again. I acted like the promise was contingent on what this person said to me in that email or this person said in this phone call. I'm sorry that I did that again. I know who you are. Forgive me for once again believing the alternative about you. Or those times where I say no. How often you have said no. I know the best course of action for my life and where I need to go. I know how I'm going to get to the blessed life, God. I know I'm going to get there through X, Y, and Z whether it's climbing the corporate ladder, taking 8 million vacations a year, I know how I'm going to do it. This is how I'm going to do it. It's not going to be through Jesus. I know how to get there, and so no. Keep your trials and keep your tests to yourself. I got this. And in that moment, what we've done is we've elevated ourselves above God. And we've said, actually, I am the creator of the universe, of the Justin verse. I will fashion it to my liking. I will fashion it around this job and this many kids and this career and this family outing and this vacation and as long as I achieve this pyramid of success and my self-actualization will happen at this moment, then I will achieve greatness. Don't you know that, God? This is years of scientific research. Don't you know that? And then what happens? The promise of blessing, the promise of eternity, now becomes dependent on me, on my perfection, on my sinlessness, on my ability, and my character. And I can tell you, church, what an awful place for the promise to rest. What shaky ground for the promise to rest upon. What a cracked foundation for the promise to rest upon. The shoulders of a man or a woman who we don't know what we will be like in five or ten years, but we know who Jesus has been like, what God has done for thousands of years, who he has never changed, who he is the same yesterday, today, 
and forever. That if you read in the Old Testament and the New, it's the same righteous and gracious God who has been extending mercy and forgiveness to his people for thousands of years, making a way for them until he made ultimately one way for all people to come through to him, Jesus Christ. And he has said through this narrow gate and narrow path, all who enter will come into my kingdom, who will be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his eternal light. And it doesn't matter on the circumstances around us. It doesn't matter if we are rich or we are poor. It doesn't matter if we are pretty or we are ugly. It doesn't matter what we stand on as people. What matters is, has Jesus done it? And the answer is yes, and it will be yes tomorrow, and it was yes yesterday. And so every single day I wake up to God's promise being a yes, and so I get to remind myself and bathe myself in the good news of the gospel that Jesus has come, that he has set me free, that he has allowed me to enter into the gates of heaven, that this morning, though I am poor and though I am broken, I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and I can boldly go before the throne of of grace, not like a poor man, but like a rich man, because I go through the eyes of Jesus. And on that sure foundation rests the promise of God. Not on the broken one of my shoulders, not on the brokenness of this world, but on the anchor of hope that was given to us in Christ. So as hardship comes, remember that the promises of God are yes and amen. Remember that God is faithful. That he does not lie. And that a great promise was set before us. And that Jesus was the first to obtain this promise. And through him, you and I enter into that same promise. And you may have woken up mad today. You may have woken up happy. You may have woken up sad. You may wake up angry tomorrow. You may wake up joyful tomorrow. I don't know. Guess what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't. The only thing that does matter is has Jesus done it? And guess what that answer is no matter how I wake up today or tomorrow? That answer is yes. So that means every day I can wake up with a yes and amen to the promises of God. And that's all I need to be fulfilled, to be patient, and to endure. And that is what the writer and the preacher of Hebrews is trying to get across to this church. Who cares how you wake up today, how you've woken up yesterday, and how you will wake up tomorrow, how the circumstances will change, how it will get easier or harder. The promise of God is an anchor of the soul. They are yes, they are amen, because he is a God who does not lie. Will you stand with me?